Well, hello, friends, and welcome to the Andrew Giuliani Show. Today, we're going to be talking all about Israel and these uh, Hamas murders, this uh, disgusting, gross, grotesque um, maiming of Israeli citizens, of American citizens. Uh, I find it to be uh, beyond repugnant. And to me, you've heard a lot of the different commentary by WABC scholars and hosts and commentators and people who have come on. And you've also heard it on different channels. This has been something that's been covered 24-7 over the last few days, as it should be. Um, Today, I want to give you a little bit of a different perspective, at least from what I've heard from WABC. First off, I want to talk a little bit, uh, considering I am one of the youngest members of WABC's on-air talent, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what my experience in school was like with regards to the pro-Palestinian movement and how I believe students are brainwashed against the state of Israel starting in school. Now, I can be honest with you, I think probably over the recent years since I've graduated from school, I graduated from school in 2009, so nearly 15 years ago, uh, I think this is something that's seeped into high school and even grade school, but certainly... I was first confronted with it on college campuses. And then I also want to talk to you about President Trump's actions with regards to Iran because I worked in the White House at the time. I remember very well in early January of 2020 when President Trump took out El Soleimani, the general for Iran, because he told Iran that if there was going to be further aggression, we are going to take out your top generals, we're going to take out your top officials, and he kept his promise. We're also going to talk about the Iran deal and how that has seeped into Iran basically having the economic means to be able to give Hamas, give Hezbollah, and other terrorist organizations the assets to go after Israel and America and our Western allies. But first, going back to school and kind of my experience with how Palestine, Israel, the relationship was taught in schools. You know, this is something that, uh, look, I've grown up in politics, so I've been aware of this. I remember very well when my father threw Yasser Arafat out of the Metropolitan Opera during the 50-year anniversary of the United Nations. He made it very clear that these were leaders of foreign countries, as Yasser Arafat was not a leader of a foreign country, but of a liberation, the Palestinian Authority, that he called the Liberation Movement, but it was nothing more than a murderous thug who sadly would use the United States media to push his radical beliefs and use United States education. But I remember very well when that happened. Uh, That was 1995, and he did not invite Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat found out, or I I should say my father found out that Yasser Arafat was up in one of the boxes. I think it it was one of the Jordanians. I could be wrong about that. I'm not 100% certain about that, but I think it was one of the Jordanians that actually gave Yasser Arafat his ticket to come in into one of the luxury boxes in the 
Metropolitan Opera. My father found out before the opera had begun for all these world leaders on the 50th anniversary of the UN. And he said very clearly to his deputy mayors, he said, get him out of here or I will. And so a few of his deputy mayors went up to the box, told Yasser Arafat that he had to leave. He would not leave. And he said, if you don't leave, then the mayor is going to come up, come up here and personally escort you out with the NYPD. And knowing the penchant that my father had for perp walks, I think they realized pretty quickly that he was not bluffing. Uh, the New York Times and the Clinton administration at the time ended up going after my father, saying that he was in the way of a diplomatic peace process. Well, the Clinton administration found out a few years later that Yasser Arafat never wanted to have a two-state solution, as Clinton had hoped, as Baker before them had hoped, a Republican. Uh, but he was basically utilizing the United States for the billions of dollars because he knew, he knew the longer that he strung Clinton along. But going back into school, that all is prefaced to say that I was kind of aware of this going into school, so I was in a bit of a, of a unique situation. But I think there are a lot of students, even at a school as well-regarded as a Duke University, let's say, always one of the top 10 schools in the country, which I was blessed enough to go to. Um, when you first get on campus, you start seeing some of the pro-Palestinian signs. And I remember this very well on our West Campus at Duke, and there was an area kind of by the student union that would always have the pro-Palestinian and the apartheid and the Israeli occupation. And I knew what it was from the very beginning, and I knew kind of the falsehoods of it. But I saw other students at Duke kind of fall for the propaganda, if you will. I saw them fall for the idea that, wait a second, no, the Palestinians, they just are the victims here of an overzealous Israeli government that is trying to take more and more land and oppress more and more Palestinians. What they didn't know or what the university would not tell students at the time and certainly don't tell them now. You can look at Harvard. You can look at Columbia. I'll actually pull that up in terms of what they said in a little bit. But they would not tell students the fact, the simple fact, that in Gaza, Hamas, Hezbollah up north, Iran, who sponsors these, their mission was to end Judaism as we know it, end the state of Israel, and eradicate Jews all across the world, all across the face of the earth. So to use the college campus analogy, or for us that live in apartments in New York City as I do, imagine your next door neighbor to the South, let's say, doesn't believe that you have the right to exist. Not only do they hold that view that you don't have the right to exist, but if they had the assets necessary to actually see that view through, to eliminate you, to eliminate your family, and to eliminate anyone of your religion and your belief, they would see to it. They would eliminate you. They would kill you. They would rape your wife, and they would behead your children. That's what we've seen. This is not... This is not just me speaking off the cuff. This is stuff that we've seen happen over the last week. 
but that's not it. Imagine the people to the north of you on your other side. They share those same beliefs. Now, okay, these people, they don't have the resources to get into your apartment or your dorm room, whatever. This is an analogy, but it's just to give you an idea of something that we all see all the time, right? We live in apartment buildings. We understand our next door neighbors. Now, they don't have the resources to get in or to actually do that because, thankfully, Israel has developed incredible technology with the help of the United States, I say, but they have developed incredible technology over the course of their history and their existence. But now you have somebody who lives a few floors down who is funding your next-door neighbors, Hamas and Hezbollah, to try to do everything they can to break down those walls, the walls that separate your apartments. You are the state of Israel. And they are trying with everything that they can. They now have the tools, the jackhammers, to try to be able to get into your apartment. And their goal is not to just to get in your apartment to go and have a meal with you or to have a policy discussion with you or to have this, I don't know, try to even convince you that maybe your religion is inferior to them, as ridiculous as that would be. They want to kill you. They want to kill your family. They want to show other Israelites. They want to show other Jews around the world that you don't have the right to exist. So, when you're in school... And you first see this, you hear, well, Israel is the oppressor. There should be a pro-two-state solution. Palestine has the right to exist. Palestinians, for a very long time, they are the oppressed in this. They are the victims here. If Israel was only was not so trigger-happy, then we would have a two-state solution. This is not the fault of Palestinians whatsoever. They don't mention that the Palestinians elected Hamas in the West Bank. They don't mention that at all. Now, look, I do believe that many of the Palestinian people, not saying a majority, but I do believe that many of the Palestinian people are oppressed, but they're not oppressed by Israelis. They're oppressed by Hamas. They're oppressed by Hezbollah. These are radical terrorists that if you disagree with them, they're not going to say, well, you know what? They have a First Amendment right. There is no First Amendment, by the way, over there. They have a right to a difference of opinion. They will behead you. They will kill you. They will rape your family. Again, this is not me talking off the cuff. This is exactly what we saw just a few short days ago. And this is what you would see if they had the resources, which Iran is trying to provide them, if they actually had the resources to be able to do this to the state of Israel. Now, when you look at the Democratic Socialists of America, otherwise known in Congress as the Squad, right? We know Cortez, AOC who is in the Bronx right here. We know Tlaib, who flies a Palestinian flag, and some of the others, Cori Bush, 
They are pro-Palestinian. They are anti-Israel. And they have been very quiet on this issue. They always continue to send out any type of mailers anytime there's anything that's going on in the country looking for fundraising off of issues. They won't say anything on this. They're asking for a ceasefire, even though these are terrorist thugs, murderous thugs, that did these to Israeli families. But if you look at a lot of these people, right, take a look at Cortez, for example, because I think Tlaib is a little bit of a different circumstance. I think she was probably brainwashed when she was very young, considering her Palestinian background. But you look at Cortez, for example. I have no doubt that Cortez was brainwashed in college with this garbage, with this filth, with this propaganda that Israel is oppressors. Guess what? Very clearly, if going back to the analogy that we ended up having a little earlier, if Israel, if I'm Israel and I have my apartment and the people to the north and the people to the south of me, my next door neighbors, they wanted to eradicate me. They wanted to eliminate me. And I had the opportunity to make sure that they could not get the assets to do that. If I would not share the technology with them, if I would make sure that we were vigilant on all of that, then of course I would do that if I were Israel. It would be negligence if I chose not to do that as the state of Israel. That's what you're dealing with here, ladies and gentlemen. It is that simple. Israel has a right to exist, but it's beyond that. They have the right to defend themselves. And they have the right not just to retaliate against somebody who ended up massacring their citizens just because they were Israeli and just because they were Jewish or just because they associated and were in Israel. Think about these American citizens. But they have the right to take Hamas and to, to take Hezbollah at their word. That word being that we want to eliminate you. We want to eradicate you. We don't believe that you have the right to exist. And when we do see these actions, the offensive actions against civilians, mind you, not against IDF, these are not military actions, these are massacres. It's a gross violation of human rights. That gets thrown around a lot. This is a perfect example of what real, a real gross violation of human rights actually is. And guess what? If you're Israel, you have the right to go on the offensive against people that would, Hamas, Hezbollah, against terrorists that would eliminate you that have promised you that they would if they get the resources. And you have the right to go against the people that are funding them. And that's where we get to the second part of this. I worked and was blessed to work in the Trump administration for four years, as many of you know. And one of the things I'm most proud of, and I'll be clear, I worked on domestic policy. I was in the Office of Public Liaison. So I was not working on foreign policy. 
But one of the things I was most proud of as a member of that White House was President Trump's foreign policy with regards to some of our enemies. And also issues that I think he put on the forefront that maybe other presidents would not have. I think China is a perfect example. Our presidents prior to Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, I think they looked at China as, I believe they called them, an, a frenemy kind of, an ally with an adv- adversarial relationship. Well, President Trump made it very clear that China's goal was to make sure that US, the U.S. did not exist as a superpower. And whether that took 10 years, 20 years, we knew their goal was more by the end of this century. They were going to see to that. And we saw that then at the, toward the end of his presidency, in the last year of his presidency. But one of the things that was obviously one of the biggest, I guess Obama supporters would call accomplishments, but I would call colossal failures of not just the Obama administration, but by any presidential administration in American foreign policy history was the Iran deal done by Barack Obama in 2015. Now, the media pitched this to us as, well, Iran will not have the opportunity or they were severely hindered from having the opportunity to produce uh, a nuclear weapon. And that's why all of this money, these hundreds of billions of dollars that Obama released, including a lot in cash to Iran, uh, is worth it. It's worth doing that. It's going to bring them in on the global stage. It's going to make them an adversarial ally in the future. Well, we saw very quickly that they were not abiding by those rules. They were not really inspectors. They were able to even tell if they were abiding by the rules set forth by the Iran deal. And that money that was sent over from the Obama administration was used to fund Hamas, Hezbollah, and other terrorist organizations. Other terrorist organizations that not only believed that Jews didn't have a right to exist, that not only would take offensive actions if they had the opportunity, as we saw this week, to go after and to eliminate Israelis and Jews, but Americans as well, chant regularly death to America. So when President Trump came in, that was one of the things that he wanted to take another look at, knowing that he was likely going to overturn this deal and to put sanctions on Iran. Now, to me, you know I'm always a big believer in the numbers don't lie here. And there are a couple of charts that I want to pull up because I think this has been really better told in the numbers than anything else in terms of the economic, really, problem that Iran had under Trump. So if you end up looking at the economic growth in Iran from 2005 to 2011, with the exception of 2008 and 2009, as we knew that there were, uh, we had an economic global catastrophe in 2008, carried into 2009 and beyond. Uh, GDP in Iran grew 
between 3 and 5%. From 2012 to 2015, it ended up actually going down because they also ended up seeing issues with uh, other countries putting sanctions on them outside of the United States of America. It was difficult for their oil to get out. Well, as soon as the nuclear deal was implemented in 2016, you saw Iran grow at a 13% GDP. 2014, 2017, sorry, a 4%. And the reason that's only 4% is because President Trump took office. So a lot of that was in the first quarter of 2017. By 2018, they actually shrunk at 4%. By 2019, shrunk at 10%, economics, economic GDP in Iran. And then you can also look at the Iranian oil output because they are linked. That's where these sanctions were put on. Iran from 2010 to 2017 produced between over two and a half million dollar uh, two and a half million barrels to close to four million barrels per day of oil. Well that number dropped precipitously from 3.8 million in 2017 all the way down to 2.1 million by 2019. What did that end up doing? That ended up causing massive inflation in Iran. You had major protests. As a matter of fact, the Ayatollah ended up ordering that the protesters were killed. I think over 300 Iranians were killed. But you had major unrest. And Iran was on the verge. And I don't know if this was in six months or six years. But Iran was on the verge of having a regime change that might have actually changed the Middle East for good. Because when you look at Iran's oil supply, they are such an important part of that. And you look at their, at their zest, if you will, for anti-Israeli propaganda and their action that they will take to support that and their love to hate America in any way possible in what they will do. And if you have a regime change from the Ayatollah that you have now, into a more secular regime. Because I believe there are a lot of Iranian people that do not like the Ayatollah. Certainly those of Iranian descent that I have talked to, that I have had the opportunity to be educated from about this issue, they are heartbroken by what is going on in their home country. They call it a beautiful home country with wonderful people completely oppressed by a murderous regime that will fund the Hamases and the Hezbollahs. So fast forward now, Biden takes office and the U.S. ends up cutting its domestic oil drilling and supply. So if you remember, by 2019 under President Trump, America, the United States, was energy independent. We were running an energy surplus. We could become an exporter of energy. Now, why is that so key in here, right? We have the green climate zealots who tell us, well, the U.S. is fueling climate change. But why is that so important here? Well, guess what? With the U.S. not producing and the current war in Ukraine creating sanctions on Russia and their output, 
we and the world now depend more on the likes of Venezuela and, yes, Iran. So what has that done? That has re-sparked the Iranian economy because the world, especially China, is now relying more and more on Iran for oil. That is making the economic hardships where we saw inflation in Iran go up 80% in one year, 2018-2019, went up 80%, almost doubled inflation. Imagine if your eggs went from $3 a dozen to $6 a dozen. That actually happened here in the United States, but it wasn't quite that bad. went up 20%. Imagine it going up 80%, almost doubling. That's what happened. Now, those economics, Iran now has the ability to be able to make more money off of their oil supply. More of the world is buying it. Means you're easing some of the hardships. Means less people are as angry at the Ayatollah. Maybe a little bit more support, certainly from those in the direct circle around him, because I'm sure their businesses are doing far better. You have a current administration in Biden that just gave $6 billion, that's right, $6 billion to the Ayatollah, to Iran. And guess what? Iran funds Hamas. Iran funds Hezbollah. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just conclude with this. I've heard this talked about by some, even some Republican friends of mine. I think it's more out of ignorance than any any angry feelings or anything like that as a war. It's not a war what we'd witnessed this last weekend. When you're talking about wives and kids and the elderly being burned at the stake, being decapitated, children being decapitated, There's nothing in our human rights, our natural rights, our godly rights, in any religion where that even belongs in the battlefields of war. This is a massacre. And if you don't listen to what the Hamas, Hezbollah, to what Iran actually wants to do, to Jews, eradicate, eliminate them, and to America, death to America, then I don't know what to tell you, except you better start believing what they are saying. Because they have shown, if they have the assets necessary, if they have the resources, if they have the help, and if they have the ignorance of the American government to rely on, then they will do exactly what they pledge to do. I stand with Israel, but I don't just say it. This is a point here in Western civilization. We need to stand with our closest friend, with somebody who America relies on more than I think most understand. Because if we don't, then the United States of America may very well be next. This is the Andrew Giuliani Show. Thank you for listening.
We'll talk to you next week.